You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our study through the Book of Acts. We're calling it, We Are All Witnesses, Part 2. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the Book of Acts, and get ready to study God's Word with us. Hi, it's great to see you. Um, Yeah, yeah, good to have you. Um, Here in Elgin, I'm really happy to be back here for a little bit. Um, Those of you who are joining us live, it's awesome to have you join us. Uh, Before we get started studying God's Word, first of all, you're going to need a Bible. You're going to need to see if you can turn it to Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, We're going to get a really great story here. Before we do that, though, what I need to uh, remind some of you is that uh, this is Harvest's anniversary weekend. We are 34 years old. So one more year... One more year and we'll be old enough to be president of the country. So here's hoping. Amen. (laughs) That'd be the worst thing for us to be the president of the country. Yeah, it really would. Uh, But yeah, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 17. Um, When I first started in ministry, my my father-in-law was the... my my boss, actually, he was the, the senior pastor and I was the youth guy. He'd invited to come and to serve with out in the middle of a wheat field at this great little church called Onico Bible Church. Um, he gave me a book like on the second day I was there and he said, read this, read this book. It was kind of thick, so I was a little worried. It was a white book and it was titled uh, From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya. And the book was about, um, about world missions. It was basically about the history of how it is that the world has been reached with the gospel, but it was done in little snippets of different characters, different people throughout all the ages who have served Jesus. It was like a, so you'd have a page on, you know, Hudson Taylor, that'd be a name you know. You'd have a page on William Carey. You'd have a page on, there's all sorts of different, um, different uh servants of Christ over the ages that the Lord did some really remarkable things with, some people I'd never heard about before. And so I I found myself reading through it uh, and just being enormously encouraged by each one of these little snippets. One of the ones that was especially encouraging to me was um, about a woman named Gladys Aylward. Some of you might know that name. Many of you who are younger probably wouldn't. She was a parlor maid in the early 20th century. And so uh, Downton Abbey era, okay? Men, you remember the Downton Abbey? Yeah? Or was when you fell asleep halfway through? But you saw that there was an upstairs people who wore all the tuxedos and the downstairs people who served served the rooms and ladies' maids and stuff. She was one of those downstairs people. And uh, very, she was a very poor woman, very small very small woman with jet black hair. She went to a conference, she's a Christian lady, so she went to a conference where she heard uh, the pastor start talking about world missions and the call of Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. And she thought, that's, that's what I want to do. Um, she had no money, she's nothing, but that, that's exactly what I, what I want to do. So she applied to one of the largest mission agencies of that time. You know, this is in England of those days. And so um, she applied to, 
Hudson Taylor's China Inland Mission. And they said, well, come along and we'll, we'll see if you're, you're able to be one of our missionaries. And so she went and they went, ran her through the tests and things. And they said, I'm sorry, you just don't pass our exams. You're, you're not quite up to the standard that we need in order to have an impact in China. So she went back sad, but she could not get this out of her mind when she was cleaning things around uh, the great homes that she served she could not get this out of her mind that maybe the Lord could use her somewhere else. And so she started to contact some people in China itself. There was a dear woman named Mrs. Jeannie Lawson who needed help in China to run the ministry that she had, trying to proclaim the gospel in the little area that she was in. But Jeannie Lawson said, I can't pay you, and I can't pay you anything to get here, okay? So little Gladys Aylward totally unfunded, decided, all right, I'm going to try to make it. She had no money at all. She tried to see if she could get a boat ride, which is how you did it in those days. It would take months to get around there. It would take a long time to get all the way to China. But she didn't have enough money for the boat ride, uh, even in the steerage class. You remember Titanic, some of you? So she ended up making a decision, okay, I'm going to go in faith by train, so she got over to the continent, right, to France, and she gets on this train, the Trans-Siberian Express, and she's in the, the cruddy part of that, that train. And the further and further that they go, the fewer and fewer people are on the train, and the more and more soldiers are on the train. She realized as she was going along, as she got into kind of the Soviet Union of those days, right, she was, she was in a, basically a war zone. And so the soldiers said, you need to get off the train because this train is going to go, we're about to go in a fight, like in a mile. So you need to get off. And they dumped her out in the Siberian snow. And she's sitting by the railroad tracks, all, got nothing. She, got little, she actually had a few pots and pans, you know, because you got to cook. <laughs> so she hikes herself back to the nearest town, organizes some way to get actually ultimately to Japan, and then she comes back to China, and then she goes on another train, and eventually is, ends up on a mule, making her way to Jeannie Lawson's place. She arrives on this mule with pots and pans and nothing else except the bag on her back. So she starts to take part in this ministry with, with Jeannie Lawson. They're trying to reach out to people, but they're not really sure how it is they're going to do it. They're on a main trade route, though. Like, you know, people would travel by on the main road. Like, I-90 went in front of their house. And so they're, they're thinking about it. How, how can we get people to come in and hear about Jesus? And they decided, what if we made an inn? You know, a place where people would stop on the Holiday Inn Express right here on the side of the road. And then people would come in, they'd stay, they'd stay overnight, and we could try to make friends with them and proclaim the gospel to them. So they did, but nobody stopped. They just kept going by. Till Gladys, little Gladys Aylward, spunky as she was, decided, you know what, this isn't good enough. She went out into the middle of the road, and the, the mules would come, and they had a big caravan behind them, and she'd grab the first mule and steer it into her, into her place, and all the other mules, because they were used to following the first one, followed right in. And all of the people were like, okay, well, maybe we should just stop here for a little while. We're all tired anyway, and so they would. And they would take care of them. Jeannie, Jeannie Lawson and, and Gladys Sale would take care of these dear people. But the difference with this inn from all the others is they had entertainment. 
They had a story time every night where they told stories about a man named Jesus. The people were so engaged with it, they would actually retell these stories as they traveled along to the different stops. And so the gospel started to spread through, through this region. More and more people were coming to faith in Christ. She became really actually well-known, Gladys Aylward. She had a way with people there. I think it was probably because she was short, jet black hair. She looked like all of them. The reason, in fact, that China Inland Mission turned her down was because she wasn't of the proper stature. But her stature was the very thing that was getting her on board with all of these people, especially the women. In those days, they used to bind the feet of women so that uh, it was thought to be beautiful in China that day if you were to, to be a woman whose feet would, like they'd bind them and they'd grow inward. It's gross, right? But they'd walk like this, which is, of course, very beautiful. Right? That's what they thought. But the government was like, this isn't healthy. It's no good. We need to actually change this, but we can't get any, we don't have anybody who can go in to these little houses and talk to these little Chinese women. It's like scandalous for some man to go in there. And we don't have any women who actually have the courage to go in and do this and understand what we're trying to do. We need somebody who has a, has a, has a, has a, and their ear. And they realized, oh, we should take this little lady and do it. So Gladys Aylward by the sponsorship of the Chinese government, was allowed and asked to go from house to house to house to house to house, educating people on how it is that you should unbind the, their feet, the women's feet. And she told stories about a man named Jesus, sponsored by the Chinese government. <laughs> so if you look in history books, actually, the, the, you know, one of the key reasons why it is that um, foot binding stopped in that in that place was this little lady named Gladys Aylward. It worked so well that the local area leaders said the next year there was a prison riot. And they were like, what do we do in this prison riot? And one of the guys said, listen, last year we asked this little Gladys Aylward to do it. Maybe if we send her into the prison, she can do something. She's a little lady. So they, they go and they ask her, hey, you need to go in the prison. And she's like, I, listen, it's one thing to go in and talk to all these little ladies in their houses. Another thing to go into and talk to the like, the criminals, okay, that they said, oh, you, you, you keep telling us that your God can do anything and that he will protect you anywhere you go. Is that true? Oh, great. So she goes into this prison. No kidding. She's just such a spunky lady. She went into this prison and she, she got in there. And the first thing she did was everyone was so loud. She said, stop it. Stop. I can't hear myself. Everyone be quiet. They all just sipped it. She lined all these men up and she just went down. You need to stop doing all the things that you're doing because it's terrible. The prison riot stopped. And there were other riots, so they sent her into there. She did the same thing, stopped all these prison riots. Eventually, uh, she had such an impact in China that she became actually a citizen of the country. She's still well-known. They made movies about this. It's called The Inn of the Sixth Happiness. Ruth Tucker, who wrote that book, From Jerusalem to Erie and Jaya, she actually wrote in the book something that Gladys Aylward said at the end of her life. She, she said this, uh, I don't think I was God's first choice for what I've done for China. I think there was somebody else. I don't know who it was, but it was God's first choice. It was probably a man a wonderful man, a well-educated man, 
And I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And then God looked down and he saw Gladys Aylward. <laughs> All right. You know, that's what happens when you read Christian biography and stuff about these dear people who've gone into the world and done amazing things. It just gives you the chills. It gives you a perspective, in fact, on the world that you live in right now and what your commitment looks like and why is it I'm so afraid all the time when these dear people have gone through so much and at the end, what's happened at the end is that they've seen God move in amazing, amazing ways. Why can't I have that courage? This story that we're going to study in the next few minutes in Acts chapter 5, verse 17 to 42 is intended to have the same effect as me telling you a story about Gladys Aylward. It's meant to have the effect of you to read it and say, wow. How, how did they have such amazing commitment? So what I want to do is I'm going to tell you this story and then at the end, I want to give you just two applications to it, all right? It's very simple. We're going to tell you the story, two applications. The story's supposed to be a little bit funny in places. So I need to tell you the whole thing so you kind of get the whole vibe for it, all right? So let's start by, let, let's just look at this story. It's in Acts 5, verse 17. Let me get you up to speed about what's going on in Acts 5, 17. Um, earlier on in the book of Acts, what you've got is Peter and John, two of the apostles. They've seen Jesus uh, resurrected. It's changed everything about them. They get, went from being cowards to just excited evangelists. They go into the temple one day. There's a man sitting on the ground. He's a beggar. He, he, his legs don't work. Everybody knows him. He's been there for a long time. He's saying, alms for the poor, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And these guys stop, Peter and John. And Peter catches eyes with him. And he says, listen, I don't have any money for you, but I got something better. In the name of Jesus Christ, stand up and walk. And he pulls the guy up and this guy, whoop, and all of a sudden he's standing. And he went walking and leaping and praising God. That's actually a song that they sing with little kids, right? No? Okay. They, I, okay. That, when I was a little kid, that's what they're walking and leaping, praising God in the name of Jesus Christ. Nazareth, rise up and walk. You're welcome. So, Anyway, this guy's running around and everybody knew who he was. And so all the big crowd gathers. Oh my goodness, look at this man. He's been here lame for all this time. What happened? And Peter, being the good pastor he is, was like, oh, there's a crowd. I got a few things to say. We're going to pass the offering plate now. No, he got up and he said, he, he said, listen, let me tell you about why this, how this guy got healed. His name is Jesus. He told him a story about about Jesus, about his resurrection, about how it is that he gives new life, what he offers to all of these people. And the people are just getting so excited. Thousands come to faith in Jesus. Of course, the religious leaders don't like this because they're the ones who killed Jesus, thinking they had just killed the whole movement. And now the, this apostle's doing the same thing that Jesus was doing, getting crowds around him and telling them about the new kingdom. And blah, blah, blah. So they say, get over here, Peter. Get over here, John. Put him in prison stand before the ruling religious council called the Sanhedrin and they say, don't you ever talk in this name again. Or else. And they set them loose. And Peter and John, along with the other, when they meet the other the disciples, they're like, you know what? Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Give us boldness to do exactly the opposite of what they just told us to do. And they did. 
And it got so amazing. Peter was asking, God, would you please just attend to everything that we're doing with signs and wonders? And there were signs and wonders, people getting healed and Peter's shadow would fall across people and they would, they would be healed. Just unbelievable things. Crowds gathering over and over again. And the, the ruling religious council is like, Argh! Acts 5, verse 17. But the high priest, he, he rose up. This is a funny little phrase, right? That means, all right, you know how, how when you're, if you're dad, okay, you sit there and your kids are fighting with each other, but at some point you're like, okay, enough. And you rise up. That's what the word means. Right, okay, time's over. And the kids start scurrying. That's what he does. The high priest rose up. He's gonna put an end to this. And all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. These guys are kind of the, there were two big parties in the, it's easy for us Americans to, to access, right? Two big parties in the ruling religious council, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were kind of the people's party. They were the common man's party. The Sadducees were like, don't touch us. We're too valuable, right? Like Martha's Vineyard. Anyway, that's just, <laughs> right? We're too valuable. We're too important. Don't. Don't bother, just bother, stop it, stop it. It's, not, it's just a joke. So, what was I saying? <laughs> anyway, these, these, these Sadducees are kind of like the elites and they, they liked being honored and having everybody think well of them and they were the more moral, they thought of themselves as the more moral party and they were protectors of the law. And so the party of the Sadducees, they ran the Sanhedrin. They were the ones in charge of the whole uh, council. And they were filled with jealousy. This word here actually means zeal. They were, they were jealous of the attention, sure. But it was more that they were zealous for the law of God. Listen, you guys shouldn't be the ones who are teaching anybody. We're the ones who teach around here. That's what the Lord intended. So we're going to put a stop to this. In the name of our God. So they arrested the apostles and they put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord, now here's what he's going to do. He's going to tell them to do the exact opposite of everything that the, that the ruling council had done before. Stop preaching, go to jail, you're in trouble. Watch what this guy says, the angel of the Lord. He opened the prison doors and he brought them out. And he said, okay, I need you to go and I need you to stand in the temple, which is the place that they told them, don't you dare come into our temple. And I need you to speak to the people all the words of this life. I don't want you to leave anything out. Don't duck anything. Just seriously, come in, tell them about, you know, sin and repentance and all that stuff. Lead with it. Lead with the hard stuff. Go, says the angel. And when they heard this, they entered the temple <laughs> at daybreak and began to teach. Listen, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Shawshank Redemption. It's basically about a prison break at the end. This guy, Andy Dufresne, when he goes, he climbs through a big pipe full of human sludge. And he comes out the other end. And the first thing that he does after he gets out of prison is he goes to Mexico. Can I give you a piece of advice? If you ever find yourself imprisoned, seriously... Some of you, this is more applicable than others. But if you ever find yourself in prison and you have the opportunity to escape and you get out, you should go to Mexico. You know what you shouldn't do? 
you shouldn't go back to exactly where they caught you and do the very thing that they did, you were doing publicly that they caught you doing. This is not a good idea. And yet that that's what they did. And not only did they do it, they did it when the sun rose. It's almost like, okay, when's the clock gonna tick? When's the clock gonna tick? Okay, 6 a.m. I'm gonna preach. Okay, so then the high priest came. He got a good night's sleep. He came to his office, those who were with him, and they called together the whole council. All the senate of the people of Israel. This is, this is, they're bringing their power people, all dressed in their wigs. And sorry, I don't think they had wigs, but do you know what I mean? Like the wigs and the formation of everything. They get everybody in place, put the biggest guards in the front. You guys ever seen like architecture in front of law courts? It's always these huge pillars and high ceilings and the intent is to say, you're in trouble. The state stands against you. Look at the kind of buildings we build. So they've arrayed all of the forces, all the center of the people of Israel, and then they sent to the prisons. Everybody ready? Let's go send to the prison. Go get them. Go get them. To have them brought. But when the officers came to the prison, uh, they didn't find them. So they came back and reported. This is one of my favorite phrases, this whole story. Um, they come back alone. The high priest, hey, where are the prisoners? Okay, so here's the thing. We found the prison securely locked. It's, listen, it's not like no, anybody had a key or anything. It was exactly the way we left it. And the guards, they were all standing at the doors and they were awake. They were looking at us. Hey, good morning, Jim. Good morning, Bob. But when we opened the doors, we found nobody inside. Hmm. So you're saying that there was nobody there. Yeah, I'm saying there's nobody there. Did you misplace them? You know, like your keys. Do they have a little tile on it? Maybe you could whistle or something. Push the button. Or I, or seriously, are they in another prison? Well, I think we only have one prison. So what happened? Has anybody else seen them? Have you seen them? Have you seen them? I haven't seen them. Did you put them somewhere? Okay, retrace your steps. Like, this is a total Keystone Cops moment. Everybody's like, oh, I don't know what happened. Where's it going? Captain of the Temple Garden, his chief priest heard these words. <laughs> They were greatly perplexed about them. How could this possibly happen? What's, what in the world is this going to come to? Are we going to get in massive trouble? What in the world? Keystone Cops. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And then someone told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And all the guys in the Sanhedrin are like, wait a minute. That's exactly what they, we did before. Is this deja vu? Did anything happen last night at all? The captain with the officers went and brought them, <laughs> but not by force. <laughs> so they, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. The captain of the temple guard who yesterday was, get in here, throw them in the prison, now walks up to him and says, um, hey guys, we're just wondering if maybe you guys would come over. We got some food. We've got some friends. Like we gathered everybody together. Could you just come inside? I mean, he's... Uh, like five minutes is good, 10 minutes. I mean, whatever works for you. And P Peter, and when they had brought them, 
And Peter and John are like, yeah, that's cool. They set them before the council. Again, okay, they've arrayed the council. They're all there with their wigs and everything. Okay, now's the time we're going to let them know. They set them before the council. There's nothing said about the council at all, about what happened last night. It's almost like they're like, let's just pretend it didn't happen. We don't know what happened. High priest questioned them saying, look, I got two issues with you. Number one, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And secondly, you intend, secondly, you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Do you realize what you're telling everybody? You are telling that everybody that the Sanhedrin, this holy, highly respected religious council is guilty of murder. You fishermen, how dare you say this? What say you, Peter? Peter and the apostles answered, okay, okay, well, let's deal with your first, your first issue. Uh, we have to obey God rather than men. Can I just pause the sermon right here? Pause, let's go over here for a second. Um, I just, this is an interesting little phrase, and the reason it's an interesting little phrase is because we are called in Scripture as Christians in order to submit to the governing authorities, Romans 13. We're called to submit to the governing authorities. But as you look across scripture, one of the things that you learn very quickly is that not everybody submits to the governing authorities. In fact, there are places where the rules of the governing authorities come up against the rules of God and only one of those wins for Christians. So you get really interesting passages along these lines. Um, here's one in... in uh, Here's one in Exodus having to do with these Hebrew midwives. This is the king of Egypt. He's the most powerful guy anywhere at this point. He said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Ladies, if you want a name for your daughter, there's one. Um, when, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, okay? So they're ready, they're ready to give birth. If it's a son, you got to kill him. But if it's a daughter, eh, she's fine. No threat. But the midwives <laughs> feared God. And because they feared God, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. See, the fear leads to not doing it. But they let the male children live. Okay, so the king of Egypt sees all these little boys being born. And he's like, wait a minute, I made an order here. And he brought the midwives and said to, him, said, said to them, look, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, oh my gosh, it's not our fault. Look, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous. And give birth before the midwife comes to them. This is a straight lie. It's an absolute straight lie. So, so God dealt well with them. The people multiplied and grew very strong. So, so what you have is God dealing well and rewarding people who purposely disobeyed a command of a king. Queen Vashti in Esther is told by her husband, the king, while he's having a party with all his buddies, hey, bring your wife over so she can do a little spin and dance for us so we can all ogle at her. And the queen says, I'm not going over there. And she's right. 
the Bible holds her up as actually being right. So what you have to understand, all of us, is that when the law of God comes up against the law of man and people who are even in authority around us want us to do something that is not according to what scripture teaches, our responsibility is not to submit to it, but to stand over against it. This is why the Christian church was the reason, was the reason for the civil rights movement. This is why the Christian church throughout ages has has brought God's kingdom values into places and changed the world because they were willing, like Martin Luther King, to march and not bow his knee to a body that says, no, you guys can't drink the same water as you guys do. The Christian church says, no, all are one in Christ Jesus. So our responsibility ultimately is what Peter's is. Oh, you want me to stop preaching in the name? Not gonna happen. Back to the sermon. Play. Okay. This is the right one here. We must obey God rather than men. Okay, so that's the first piece. We're not going to listen to you. And the second thing in relation to what you said about bringing his blood upon your heads. Look, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed. Guys, you killed him. You keep wanting to say that you didn't do it, but you killed him by hanging him on a tree. But listen, that's not the end of the story. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel, says Peter, to all the leaders of Israel. And forgiveness of sins. You guys killed him, but don't you see his death, his blood heals his murderers. It's not bad, it's bad news that you killed him. How dare you kill the son of God? But the son of God dies for you, the killers. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God gives to those who obey him. Would you please just understand what has happened here? This is good news, says Peter, preaching before the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, the king, sorry, that's the king of Egypt, sorry. That's the wrong guy. When they heard this, they were like, we all want to become Christians. This is awesome, this good news. No, they were enraged. And they wanted to kill them. Why? Because you say that we're murderers. Don't you dare call me a sinner. But a Pharisee, remember, other, he's the other party, the people's party. And he, he was in the council and he was named Gamaliel. So he's part of the rebellion. And his name is Gamaliel. He was a teacher of the law and held in honor by all the people. You know what? When you look into the background of Gamaliel and stuff, one of the things you immediately learn is like, this guy's Yoda. Like he is when he stands up and says, I have message for you message, whatever. And he, he talks, everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah. Even though he's on the opposition party, everyone's like, oh, Gamaliel's about to talk. Let's everyone, the wisdom's about to come forth. He was held in honor by all the people and he stood up and he gave orders. See, you can only give orders if you have everybody's ear to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, all right, men of Israel, let's be careful what we're about to do with these men. For let's remember, okay, before these days, Athutis, he rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, remember they joined him, but he was killed. 
and all who followed him, they were all dispersed, okay? And it came to nothing. So after him, Judas the Galilean, he rose up in the days of the census and he drew away some of the people after him. But, but he too, he, he perished and all who followed him were, were scattered. You see the pattern, guys? So let's, let's apply it to this present case. Let's just keep away from these men. Uh, let's at least leave them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, which were those other two guys were, it will fail. And this is his emphasis. Hey, guys, it's, not gonna, it's gonna fail. Let's just take our hands off it. It won't be a big deal. It'll rise up for a minute and then it'll die down. Let's just do that. <laughs> I mean, if it's of God, we wouldn't be able to overthrow them. We might even be found opposing God, which of course we're not opposing God. We're the good guys. Give me a break. This is all gonna die out. This little phrase right here, if, it, if it's of God, you might be fond of opposing God. This is Luke who's writing this with a wink. Hey, if you want to test whether or not Christianity is true or not, whether or not he rose from the dead, Luke is saying, let's just see if when I'm writing this in the 60s, if Christianity is still around. And the answer was, you bet. So even the religious leaders say it. If it lasts, it's of God. Man, has it lasted. I mean, you're sitting here today. I mean, you guys are sitting here today in a Christian church. It's still lasted. <laughs> right, so they get the guys back in the, in the room. They took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, <laughs> they beat them. I swear, they flogged them. It's a 39 whips. Get on your knees. We're going to whip you 26 times on your back and 13 times on your front. Those leave marks. And they charge them the same thing they said before. Do not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. <laughs> I get upset when someone says something mean to me on Twitter. Like I get mad. Lord, why did you call me into this ministry if people are not going to like me? Right? These guys are like limping away from the thing with bruises and gashes, and they're like, yes, awesome. They're worthy to suffer for the dishonor of the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. <laughs> Come on. The intention, of course, is that you and I are supposed to be encouraged, enamored, lifted up by an example like this, just like we're supposed to be lifted up by stories about Gladys Aylward and all the others who come before us. So let me just give you two quick applications, all right? Here's the first one. Uh, this whole story is written, I think, by Luke to show that God is in control of even the mightiest powers. You can array whatever you want over against the king of the universe and they will all fall away. He holds ultimate power, and even though those powers that we see before us think that they're running everything, God's like, oh my goodness, you have no idea. I'm using your stupid decisions against you. John Polhill, who's a commentator on this passage, he said this, he said the Sanhedrin was totally thwarted in its designs. 
totally helpless to control the situation. All was in God's hands. The only reason the apostles finally appeared before the council was their own willingness to do so. And they were willing to do so because the events of the night had convinced them once more that they were very much in God's hands. Yes, real power is in God's hands and so are we. Man, the Bible is just replete with examples of this, making this point over and over again. If you read through the Gospels, one of the things you'll find at the end of the Gospels when Jesus is going to the cross, they'll say things like Jesus was preparing his disciples for the fact that he was going to go to the cross and be killed. Hey guys, we're gonna go, I'm going to go be killed and crucified and then three days later I'm rise from the dead. They didn't get it. Oh, oh. Hey, guys, I'm going to be crucified. Three days later, rise from the dead. He's telling them ahead of time what's going to happen because none of this is a surprise to him. I mean, Judas is over here thinking to himself, I'm going to turn, I'm going to turn, turn the tables on this Jesus. And Jesus is ha- eating with the guy at dinner and saying, yeah, the one who dips the, 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 dips the bread in, the, in this cup with me is, is going to be guilty of betrayal. Judas. John even says, oh, he knew before anything began who was going to betray him. Judas comes in to give him the warm kiss and Jesus looks at him and says, do what you came to do. This is not a story of some man who got caught in the machinations of some big political maneuvering as if the religious leaders and authorities and the Romans had somehow figured out a way to politically stick it to him. Jesus is like, man, you guys are nothing. I wouldn't be here, Pilate, unless I chose to be here. If you go to the Old Testament, one of the things you learn is like Moses, he's standing at the burning bush. Take your shoes off. It's holy ground. God says to him, here's what I want you to do, Moses. I'm going to tell you the future. You're going to go. You're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh's the biggest, baddest cat around. You're going to go tell him, let my people go. And Moses is like, do you not know my history? I actually did something really bad. Right? Like I knew him and I did something really bad. So I don't really want to see him very well. And if I go to the people of Israel and I say, hey, I'm going to be the agent that God uses to free you. What do you think they're going to say? They're going to be like, yay. No, they're not going to be yay. I don't have any proof. They'll say, why, why do you think, you, who do you think you are? God never talked to you. God's like, okay, okay, here's a stick. Throw it on the ground. Turns to a snake. Whoa. Take your arm in your Cloak, put it back out. It's got leprosy. Ah! Put it back in, put it out. Good. I mean, Moses is probably doing that all day. Right? Yeah, but I'm not. I'm not the right guy. I'm not eloquent. You're asking me to go talk. Either in the past or since you've spoken to your service, like I'm standing here right now. There's no bet. I don't. I don't talk some go good medit right now. But I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said, "Lord said to him, Come on, who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Like who's in control of all the stuff? Is it not I, the Lord? Stop." Raising up barriers that do not exist for me. Yes, they exist for you. You look at them and are like, oh, I'm going to cower before it. But I look at them and think, give me a break. Ping. So go. Look, I'm going to be, man, I'm going to be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. 
God's not scared by the biggest, baddest cat in the world, the king. He's the king of kings. It doesn't matter what governments or what enemies of the cross want to do. They, all that they plan and all that they do works together to further God's purposes. That's sovereignty. That's power. That's control. And I was in China years ago, northern China. We arrived there. It was not a mission trip, but we went there to kind of tour some of the Chinese church facilities and some of the things that they were doing. Well, the police had found out that we came, that we were from outside the area. We were way north in China in a small town, what they call a small town, a million people, <laughs> small town. So we're in there and we go and we stay in this missionary's place. The missionary, the public, I mean, they knew about them, but they kind of left them alone a lot of times. This mission was taking in little girls who'd been sold into the sex trade and ran away and they would get, get them and put them in their property and hide them. So we were there, we arrived I go and sit, get the bunk, put my stuff on the bunk, and all of a sudden I hear honking outside, like a lot of car honking. And somebody's speaking over a loudspeaker in Chinese. This goes on for like hours. Finally, the guy who he came, who's our host, came down, and he, he, with a smile on his face, he says, you like this? I said, what in the world? He says, he's the police. What? It's, yeah, it's the police. They're driving around to let us know that they saw you coming in, and they're saying over the loudspeaker that you better not do anything that harms the Chinese Communist Party. And this guy's laughing. Isn't that great? I'm like, great? Are they going to arrest us and put us, you know? He goes, look, they think they're in charge. But we know who really is. <laughs> right. You do know that in your life right now, God is in charge of all the stuff. We're so scared. We're so frightened. There are mountains before us. And the Lord's like, this is not a mountain. This is a little bump. I'll be with you. What are you talking about? I'm going to be with you. Yeah, but it's a big thing. I don't have what's necessary. I don't speak them so good. Come. God's like, come on. Come on. Look who the people I use. Why are you so afraid? Second, then, our commitment to God is fueled by our appreciation of the control of God. God is in control of even the mightiest powers, okay? But it's our appreciation of that control that fuels our commitment to God. You want to be really committed to God? Fill up your tank on his control. Question. All right. If you were freed from prison, would you go back to the location where they captured you? Uh, if you were standing before powerful governing officials who had authority to kill you and your family, would you tell them the exact opposite of what it is that they wanted to hear? If you were whipped... Repeatedly, would you smile and sing as you walk down the street because you counted it a joy to suffer for the name of Christ? Would you still preach? So why did they? Guys, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I don't know a lot of people who would do what these apostles did. 
So my question with this whole passage is why are you like you are? Like what, what happened? What, what do you know that I don't know? Because I don't have that commitment. Tell me, what is it? And I'm just telling you that they were confident in the control of God over everything. Their commitment to God was fueled by their appreciation of the control of God. This is what happens throughout his, I think I told you guys maybe a year or a bit ago when I first kind of came to the church about one of my great heroes. He's from the book, From Jerusalem to Irian Jaya. First time I ever read about him. His name's John Patton. He actually went to serve Jesus in an area called the Vanuatu. He had a huge ministry in Glasgow, Scotland to children, flourishing, but he felt the Lord calling him to go away from his family, away from everything. He gets on a boat, eventually ends to the South Pacific. He gets off the boat. The last people who got off a boat who were Christians who were trying to reach the tribe on that island, Tana, were eaten. They cut them up. They killed them, cut them up, and ate them. So he's the next foot, the next Christian foot on the beach where the last Christians were eaten. He's followed around by the tree. He's able to kind of settle in, but he's, nobody comes to faith in Christ. He's just followed around every day with guys holding rocks ready to stone him if he says or does anything that they didn't like. They had muskets that they had traded with the British traders, and they would hold the muskets at the man's head. Can you imagine doing your job every day with someone following you around with a gun? Uh, don't you dare add that wrong. This, is what, this was his life. Four years. There were times he said that I was standing in the middle with guys with spears and quivering rocks and all this stuff, and they were ready to kill me. So much anger in their eyes. When he wrote about it later, he said, look, in, those mo- in that moment, he said, my heart rose up to the Lord Jesus, and I saw him watching all the scene. And then my peace, it, it, came back to me like a wave from God. I realized, I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. And that assurance, it came to me as if a voice from heaven has spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. Don't you see him? He's like, God, my God controls all this. You guys can threaten all you want, but the only way that you get what you want is if he lets you for his purposes. I'm immortal till my master's work with me is done. This week I was listening to Tim, Ke- Tim Keller, Pastor Kim Keller. He's re- resigned. Ultimately he's sick. He's, he's going to die in the next number of years. He's got cancer. He was being interviewed, and he, they were asking him, why, why do you, what would you tell somebody, a young person who's dealing with anxiety, because we're living in a day where anxiety is just destroying people. What would you tell them? And he paused, and he said, look, um, if the resurrection is true, it means that everything's going to be all right. If Jesus rose from the dead and he is the first fruits of all who will follow and that this is the first sign of God remaking all things so that everything bad will be undone 
and that there is this glorious future all because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a sign for all of us of his power and his ability to bring it to pass, all these promises to bring it to pass, then at the end of the book, we know what happens and everything turns out all right. Kids are worried because they don't know that. Most people are worried and afraid because they don't know that. But the Christian gets to see that and say, oh, I'm immortal. I'm immortal. Let me finish with this. Look, um, you have a past, you live in your present, and, and you will have a future. I just want you to think, here you sit right now, if you went back to your past and you could like take that time machine thing that goes back and run, you know, uh, back to the future stuff, and you could go back and talk to the person you were in the past, and this person is very worried about a whole bunch of things. Am I going to get married? Is this going to turn out? Oh my goodness. You pick the things that you were really worried about in the past. What would present you sell past you? As a Christian, you know what you would say? Hey man, it's all going to turn out okay. God's, God's on your side. Okay, here you sit, and I just want you to think about future you. Future you is sitting with Jesus together with him. You're sitting next to Gladys Aylward and John Patton and all the other great cloud of witnesses who have seen God come through for them at every stage. There you sit, and you get to go back and have a word with present you sitting in the church right now with all the things that frighten you. What is future you tell present you? Oh man, it's not a mountain. It's all going to be all right. Believe me, it's all going to be all right. In fact, the things that you think are so bad are a blessing. You should rejoice that you've been counted worthy to suffer for the name. And what a name it is. Luke 6, and 23, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you, their name is evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. We pray, Father, um, I, I just pray that you focus our eyes on those those days, those future days, the things that you're doing and the things you want to do with us, God. I, we sit so much, we get stuck so much in the moments. I feel like I'm saying this over and over again to our church right now. And so I take that as from you, that this is a word for us in this season right now, that you have your hand upon us. You are guiding and leading us. And even though it looks like chaos, people are throwing stones or ready to attack or we, we're so worried and anxious about the things that are in front of us. God, would you just... Sit us down and remind us everything everything is going to be okay. We thank you for our Lord Jesus and we ask all these things for his good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.